Following me around the house as I'm working, asking me, Papa, what, why are you doing that? Papa, what are you, what are you doing? And often, often answering, uh, asking questions that there really are no answers for. Uh, one of the best questions I've gotten of late is, Papa, why is Friday? <laughs> the more you think about that, the more your mind blows. Isidore Rabi, the um, Nobel Prize-winning physicist, was asked by the, the nominating committee when he received his prize to what he attributed his inquiring mind, he said, to my mother, who always asked me every day when I came home from school, Isidore, did you ask any good questions today? Now, our, our children are asking uh, good questions. Uh, the issue is, are we giving them good answers? And that's uh, the issue we want to confront this morning in Joshua chapter 4. Now, as I did last week, I'm going to read through the chapter, annotate it a bit, just comment brief- briefly on, uh, on the uh, chapters we read through it, and then draw some conclusions from this event in the life of uh, the nation of Israel. Chapter 3, as you know, is the story of the crossing of the Jordan. Chapter 4 is the story of the memorials to the crossing of the Jordan. Verse 1, Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe. That was anticipated for us in chapter 3, verse 12, where prior to the crossing, the tribes elected one man from each tribe to represent the entire tribe. And command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here. And I can just see Joshua standing in the middle of the Jordan, with the Ark of the Covenant pointing down, saying, from here, take the twelve stones, which would suggest that Joshua himself was standing by the Ark when the people crossed the, uh, the Jordan. Command them, saying, take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place, where you lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, that is to the twelve, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, literally on his back. These were large stones. They either placed them in sacks or they strapped them to something like a pack, backpack. And they carried the stones with them to the other side. Verse 6, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later or tomorrow, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, that is each of the twelve who represent the rest of the nation of Israel, you shall say to them, because... The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Remember, last week I commented on the fact that the Ark is frequently referred to as the Ark of the Covenant in this account because it represents not only God's promise, or God's presence, but his promise, his faithfulness to Israel. This is the meaning of the stones. This this verse uh, leaves us no doubt. The significance of the memorials is summarized here because... The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. 
So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Remember last week, the priests carried the ark to the brink of the river, to the edge of the river. The moment the priest's foot, uh, feet touched the, uh, the soles of their feet touched the water, the waters rolled back 19 miles upstream to Adam, and the people were able to uh, cross on dry land. Verse 9, Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. That note from an eyewitness of this event, the writer of, of the book who, as we've said before, was probably one of Joshua's officers. Now there's a little bit of confusion in the New International Version. If you have an NIV, it reads as though... There is only one set of stones, only one memorial. The problem is that the NIV supplies a phrase that doesn't occur in the text at all. They supply in verse 9, Then Joshua set up the twelve stones which had been in the middle of the Jordan. But the text really doesn't say that. And I draw the conclusion that there are two memorials, two, two cairns, two sets of stones. There is one set on the west side of the Jordan, and there was another set in the Jordan, in the middle of the Jordan, which was... Uh, Joshua's private and personal memorial, for which there was no explanation apart from the parting of the, of the waters. There would simply be no way to get that pile of stones into the middle of, of the river, apart from the fact that uh, at one time there was dry ground and they were able to place the stones there in the middle, in the middle of the river. Verse 10, for the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed. I couldn't help but think of our Lord's words from the cross to Telestai. It is finished. It's completed. It's all over. Until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. All the promises that were fulfilled in, in their entry into the land and the promise of their possession of it. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing, no one got left behind, that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed before the people. And then you have a, a brief note about the two and a half tribes that had taken up residence on the east side of the river in Transjordan. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war. Crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they feared him, they revered him, they highly respected him, just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. This is a wonderful note for those of you that are involved in, in leadership. All Moses did was simply do what God told him to do. He had an, enor an enormous responsibility to bring two and a half million people into the land of Canaan to dispossess the Canaanite, uh, Canaanites, to feed and clothe and care for those people. He had an enormous logistic problem as well as just the problem of carrying on warfare in the land with a, with a group of people that had never been engaged in war in their, prior to their, uh, their journey to the east side of the Jordan. They really were not equipped as warriors at all. And all Joshua did was follow the Lord. The Lord told Joshua what to do, and Joshua told the people what to do. And as a result, he was qualified as, as their leader, and, and God exalted Joshua. Jeremiah says, don't seek thing, great things for yourself, but if God exalts you, 
then then that's that's a good and proper thing. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they feared him. Then the Lord said to Joshua, verse 15, Command the priests who carried the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. And the text says literally, as it was three days. Before, Remember the significance of those three days. In other words, there was no way back. You couldn't go back to the old life. The old life had been cut off. Now, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of, of Jericho. And the significance of that date is that this is 40 years to the day that they came out of Egypt on that on that particular day, 40 years before, they had uh, had selected the lamb that was to be offered uh, for the Passover sacrifice. So that 40 years to the day from that date when God promised their deliverance from Egypt, they entered the land. And those 12 stones which they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea. Notice the you there refers to the children. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you. Those who had crossed, perhaps in their father's arms, and had no recollection of that event, and nevertheless were a part of it. They crossed Jordan, just as their fathers had. But they were unaware of this this mighty uh, act of God. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the people may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so you may fear the Lord your God forever. In other words, the significance of the crossing of the Dead Sea and the significance of these memorials is that uh, these piles of stones were were to remind the Israelites who crossed the, 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 the Jordan that God was mighty. They could well say when they looked at those stones, I can't, God can, therefore I can. That's what those stones represented. I can't, God can, therefore I can. Now I like to imagine in my mind uh, of the outcome of some of these stories. I can, uh, I'm just speculating, but uh, perhaps 12, 15 years later after... After Canaan was conquered and the land was at rest, the people had settled into their inheritances. Uh, uh, Israeli father and his uh, teenage son wandering along the banks of the Jordan River. And, and this young man saying to his father, Dad, what do these stones mean? And his father saying, well, you don't remember, son, but uh, when you were 18 months old, I took you by the hand and we walked across the Jordan on dry ground. So what what is that little pile of stones out in the middle? Well, that's General Joshua's personal and private pile of stones to commemorate the fact that he stood at that point at at one time in his life, and that's where God exalted him and made him the man that that he came to be. 
And, and son, I just have to tell you that that was the greatest event in my life. If you look way off there, off to the east, up on that flat, that's where we were camped, up in the Acacia Groves. One morning, the officers came through the camp, and they said, all right, wakey, 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 and they blew their whistles, and they made a lot of racket, and they woke us up, and they said, all right, move them out, load them up, and we put all of our stuff on our backs, and and you and your mom and I made our way down that long slope to the bluff just above the river right up there, and we looked down, and the river was at flood stage, and there was about a half mile of river to cross, and we could hear it roar for miles away, and I stood up there with you and your mother, and I thought, how in the world am I going to get you across this, this river? There's simply not, I can't even swim. There are no boats, no way across. And I thought, I can't do it. And then I watched that ark make its way down that long slope, and we kept our eye on it. Joshua told us to stay a half mile away, and we watched it. And, and when the feet of the priest touched the water, the waters rolled back, and we walked across on on dry ground. And, and and I was one of the men that was selected to pick up those stones. And I picked up the biggest, heaviest rock that I could lift. And I put it on my back and I carried it over there. And that stone is mine right there. I, I had said to myself up there, I can't do it. But God did it. And I realized I can. Whatever God calls me to do, I can do it. All I have to do is follow. And son, you might not believe this, but a little bit later, Joshua incapacitated his entire army. He circumcised the whole army, and for two weeks, within a mile of the city of Jericho, we, all of us were, were unable to fight. And I kept thinking, what if the Jerichoites attack? What are we going to do? And then I remembered, I can't, but God can, therefore I can and then shortly afterward, we, we started our march against Jericho, and I looked up at those 65-foot walls, 120 feet through at the base, and, and we didn't have any battering rams or catapults or war machines, and we did this crazy thing. You know, the Jerichoites were up there giggling and making fun and throwing tomatoes at us, and we were running, walking around the outside of the walls of all the crazy things, following the ark. And, and I thought, this is the most absurd thing I've ever done in my life. I'm embarrassed to pieces. We can't bring down the walls in this manner. I can't, God can, therefore I can. And I just kept following that ark. And for seven years, as we fought to gain the piece of ground that God had given to us, I, that, I just kept going back in my mind to these stones. And sometimes I'd wander down here if I had a, a weekend off and just look at them and remind myself, I can't, but God can, and therefore I can. That's what those stones represent. Now, the stones are gone today. This all happened more than 3,000 years ago. And if you go there today, there's nothing but desert. And Gilgal, as he wrote it away, the archaeologists can't even find the base camp where Israel kept the ark and where their children, women and children stayed while they, were, while they were at war. It's all gone. Stones are all gone. You, you won't see the, the little pile of rocks in the middle of the Jordan River today. What's the counterpart? What's the parallel today? Well, there, there are two that are given to the church in general. One is, is the Lord's table. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's table, that's a memorial. That's a way of remembering our Lord's death 
until he comes. We remember that he went down into the waters of death and he was buried and he was raised again and it all was done for my sake, for me. That's why Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a way of remembering the cross until he comes back. The Lord's table is the way we remember his death. Baptism is the way we remember our death. We are identified with him in in his death, burial, and resurrection. When we're placed into the water, we're symbolically remembering that we've been identified with Christ in his death. And and a burial takes place because that's what you do when something is dead. You put it away in the ground, but there's a resurrection that brings new life, and we come out with a new book to write. The past is forgotten, the guilt and the grief of the past is all gone. We're raised to newness of life. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of, of God's dear Son. Now, those are grand memorials. And uh, we do them to remember. But what struck me this time in reading through this passage what was, was Joshua's little private cairn. I hadn't thought about that much before, but the more I thought about it, the more sense it made that, that Joshua needed a private memorial, and perhaps we do too. I, I think somewhere in your past you, you can think back to some time where you faced some very difficult thing. God was calling you to act in a certain way, and you were saying to yourself, I can't do it, but God can, therefore I can. And you did it in his strength. You have a monument to his omnipotence somewhere in, in your past. I have a dear friend on the staff of the church where I served in California for uh, many, many years. Many of you know him, Ron Ritchie, kind of sort of a zany character. We've had him up here to speak from time to time. And uh, Ron used to keep his diplomas on his wall. Now, a lot of people do that, but they do it in order to let us know what they have done. Uh, If you know anything about Ron Ritchie, you would understand if you saw a, a Master of Theology degree on his wall that it was not a monument to what he has done, but a monument to what God had done. And that's the only reason he kept it on the wall. He had a high school diploma, he had a college diploma, he had a seminary diploma on his wall. And those were his monuments. That's the way he referred to them. Ron was raised in in Philadelphia, grew up on the streets, and eventually ended up in an orphanage. Uh, if you remember what Ron looks like, his nose is flattened all over his face where someone tried to change his appearance at some point in his life. He was, he was a tough kid. Never finished high school, enlisted in the Air Force, went overseas, North Africa, met the Lord over there. Uh, married a young woman, French-Moroccan uh, young woman, and came back with her in his late 20s, out of the service, No high school degree, nothing ahead of him except a desire to begin to preach the gospel. He knew he had to go back and get a high school diploma. So, I don't know, 25, 26 years of age, he enrolled in high school, got a high school diploma, hung it on the wall. His grades prior to that point had been less than spectacular. And his grades through high school, finishing up high school, were less than spectacular. But he got that diploma by God's grace. He was working full time going to school full-time. He had a family to take care of. By the time he had two children, when he got that high school diploma, he put it on the wall. That's a monument to God's omnipotence. 
finished college in three years, went to college straight through, worked full-time, put the diploma on the wall that was a monument to God's omnipotence. And then he went to Dallas Seminary, and, and if there's anybody who had absolutely no aptitude for languages, it was Ron Ritchie. And languages are, you know, that's, that's the, sort of the sum and substance of your seminary training. And he struggled, and he was a classmate of mine, and I saw him sweat bullets in Greek and Hebrew classes. But he got through, barely, but he got through. Working full-time, going to school full-time, supporting a family, and up went that diploma. It was a monument to God's grace. And many times I've been in his office and he'd point to those diplomas and he'd say something similar to what I'm just saying. I can't, but God can. And therefore I can. My, uh, this is my monument. This is Stanford University. I didn't go there. In fact, that's one of the ironies of my life. I went to Southern Methodist University which is a, was a party school. I don't know what it's like now. But I went to college to have a good time. Studying was the last thing on my mind. I majored in physical education. I avoided every difficult class uh, that I possibly could. I took only the required courses. I had a wonderful time. <laughs> but I'm very much like the little girl uh, who came home and said they teached her and teached her and teached her, but they didn't learn her nothing. <clears throat> Uh, got drafted after I got out of, uh, out of school. Didn't do anything very significant in the Army. I ran a swimming pool. Um, went to seminary. I, I still to this day don't know how that worked out. But I went to seminary. Made it through four years. Uh, went out to California. And they asked me to be a minister to students at Stanford University. Do you know anything about kids from Stanford University? We've got two or three of them around here on the staff, uh, which may explain a lot of things. <clears throat> they come from the top 1% of high schools all across the country. Those are the smartest kids you've ever been around. They read everything. They forget nothing. They're not only uh, very bright, but they're usually uh, student athletes and student leaders. They pick the top men and women from high schools all across the United States. And Dumbo got called to minister to him. And I'll tell you, many as the night, I walked across that campus, and I couldn't do anything but pray. That, that campus is a secular monolith. There, when I first started working there, there was, there was almost no light. It's interesting, the Stanfords, who endowed the, the school were Christians. And if you walk into Stanford Memorial Chapel now and walk around the walls, some of you may have seen that, that beautiful structure. Around the walls are verses of Scripture. If you did nothing more than, than walk around the chapel and read the Scripture, you'd become a Christian. They're, they're wonderful expressions of truth. But uh, there, there, were, there was almost no light. There was a one, one when I was there, just one little group of Christians sort of huddled together, engineering students, you know, the kind with the slide rules and the eight or ten pencils in their pocket. And, and uh, not much going on. And, and, and I met a fellow by the name of Bob Prudhomme, who was, a, who was a student there. He was a sophomore at the time. And Bob and I started meeting two or three times a week and just, just praying for the campus. 
And, and God began to bring students to us. This was the era of the Jesus movement. This was the 60s, and a lot of students were coming to the campus who were, who were Christians. And, and uh, kids started meeting the Lord, and the thing started growing. And, and after a while, there were, there were between four and 500 Christians on that campus who were boldly witnessing to the gospel. And I just had to shake my head. Because I wasn't any part of that thing. It was just that God was building a core of believers and they were beginning to share their faith. And, the, and, and this group of Christians was having tremendous impact upon that, upon that campus. Many of the students you know, Brian Fisher, who was up here a moment ago, he and a fellow named Brian Morgan started a Bible study in the Theta Delta Chi House. And, and uh, 25 or 30 men met, met the Lord as a result of that Bible study. And they started sending evangelistic teams out to other uh, other fraternity houses and and other dorms and uh, Steve Newman and a, a bunch of his friends were living in a house right off campus and whenever the radicals would put put something out they'd print a piece of uh, material they would run home and write something up and they had a printing press in their garage and they'd run it off and they'd be out there leafleting the campus with with Christian tracts and 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 uh, helpful information for students about how to know the Lord and we used to have, uh, there's a lake just, just to the west of the campus, right along Highway 280, called Lake Lagunita. And we used to have baptisms there. And, and there'd be a dozen or so students that'd be baptized. And, and several hundred students, Christians and non-Christians, would gather and sit on the beach and, and hear, hear statements of faith, how students had come to know Christ. And, and there was a mighty, powerful proclamation of, of the gospel given. We used to have, uh, uh, we'd take over White Plaza with the sound equipment and, and Steve Newman and, and uh, 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 Brian Morgan, whom some of you have met, and, and Jack Crabtree, and, uh, Brian Fisher, and Terry Pepe, and others would share their faith with, with hundreds of, of students. I remember once standing at the back of one of those uh, one of those gatherings, praying for the students as they spoke, and a student wheeled up on his bicycle, and he said to another student standing next to him, what's going on? The student said, I don't know, it's the Christians again, he said. And I just, praise the Lord, you know, it's not the Baptists, it's not the Presbyterians, it's just the Christians. Speaking out boldly. It was just an incredible experience for me. I've never had anything like that happen to me before. And, I, you know, if you, if you were to drive with me down Highway 280, which is the freeway that runs up and down the San Francisco Peninsula, and you look down to the east on that, that beautiful campus, and it is, it's a lovely campus, eucalyptus groves, and uh, Hoover Tower projects up through the trees, and you can see the tops of the fraternity houses, and there's this lovely little lake there, Lake Lagunita, right at the foot of the hills. And it's a beautiful campus. But for me, it's just a pile of stones, that's all. It's a monument to God's omnipotence. And if you were driving along with me, that's, that's what I'd point out to you. I'd, I'd, I'd say, you see that place? You see that place? That's the place where I learned a great lesson. I can't. God can. And therefore, I can. In the, in the years when I uh, came up here to Idaho, I came in 1978, and as some of you know, those were really tough years. A lot of hard things happened. Happened to my family. A lot of difficult things happened in the church. And, 
And there were many times as I was driving home, I would think, oh my, you know, what, what are we going to do? And I would think of that pile of stones over there on, on Highway 280. And I'd remember, I, I can't. God can. And therefore, I can. There, there's another monument that I'd like to, um, like to uh, mention. I, I, I don't know how to develop this. I thought about it all week, and I couldn't quite put it together in my mind, so it's a half-baked idea. But I, for what it's worth, I just don't want to throw it out to you. You remember the psalm that Chris read a moment ago, Psalm 66? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting psalm. I went uh, through a number of parallel passages in the Old Testament, if, uh, descriptions, poetic descriptions of the crossing of the Jordan, and this is one that I read as a result. And, and it's, something struck me here, and I, and I, just, I just offered as a suggestion. I don't know if this is right or not. You think about it. The psalm starts out as Psalm 101, uh, Psalm 100 does shout joyfully to God all the earth make a joyful noise to the Lord is the way the King James translates it that's the special contribution of those of you that are tone deaf shout joyfully to God all the earth sing the glory of his name make his name glorious that's both the content of our worship the proclamation of his name and uh, the concern of it to make his praise glorious Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give, they'll cringe before you. Verse 5, come and see the works of God. He addresses this, uh, this word to the, to, the, to the whole world, to the earth. Come, come see what God has done. Come where? Well, as, as the psalm goes on to tell us, come to the banks of the Jordan. Come see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever, you see. So he invites them down to the shores of Jordan and he says, Worship God here because of what he did. Then the psalm goes on. Uh, There is uh, uh, an ascription uh, of, of praise and worth to God. And then in verse 16... The psalmist uh, continues, Come and hear all who fear God, and I'll tell you what he's done for me. I'll tell you what he's done for me. And it just struck me as I read through this psalm that the first call is to come to the banks of Jordan and look at the rocks there and see what God has done, and the second, and see what God has done. And it struck me that, that we are intended to be monuments to God's omnipotence. Not, God, not monuments to his impotence, but to his omnipotence. In other words, people ought to be able to look at you and me and see the activity of God in our life. That, for me, is the most powerful witness that can be given to our children, to our families, to our wives, our husbands, our colleagues at work, our professors on the campus, our students, our friends. It's the fact that God is at work in us, that we ourselves are memorials to his, to his power. God calls us to act in obedience, to act righteously in, in some set of circumstances, and we say, I can't. 
And then we remember He can. And therefore we can. And we begin to change. I think I mentioned some months ago a story. I think I first heard it from my father about uh, the uh, cleaning woman in a, in a house, a household, wealthy household. The young man loved to bait her about her Christian faith, gave her a hard time, teased her about uh, her, her belief in the Lord Jesus. And one day he was challenging her and her belief in miracles and uh, the changing of water into wine. And she said to him, I don't know anything... I don't know how to answer you. She said, I, I don't have any trouble believing that, that Jesus can turn water into wine because my, when my Harry, my husband Harry, became a Christian, Jesus turned alcohol into groceries. See, that's, that's the greatest miracle. It's what God is doing within us, making us more like him, less greedy and acquisitive, less domineering and controlling, less melancholy, more joyful, more positive, more thankful. The Old Testament begins with a a statement that in the Messianic age, when the Lord Jesus comes back, uh, when the Messiah comes, and of course we look back to the coming of our Lord Jesus, he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That strikes me. And one of the marks of God's grace in us is that as fathers we're more loving, more compassionate, more concerned, more interested in our children, more committed to their well-being and specifically their spiritual well-being than we ever were before. That's the monument, you see, that God is building in your home. Now, he doesn't call for perfection. My goodness, what would we do if he did? What he looks for is the intent of our heart. Do we hate sin with intensity? And do we cling to the good with tenacity, as Paul puts it? That's what he's looking for. If we hate sin and we begin to call upon God to to deal with sin, he will begin to change us. And we will be changed more and more into his likeness. Then you yourself will become a monument to this truth that though you can't, God can. And therefore you can. Let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? Will you let your your, your mind run back over the events in your past life and go back to some, some incident in your life where this truth came home to you? You faced the impossible task and God led you through it safely. You can now look back and you can say, though I couldn't do it, he did it, and therefore I did it. And then transfer that principle to the impossible task that you have to face today, whatever it may be, to make some difficult choice that you've been putting on. To act against uh, some sin in your life decisively. To take some some step to deal with a habit that has enslaved you for years. You're saying to yourself, I can't do it, but he can, and therefore you can. Lord, thank you for this uh, 
this very practical manifestation of of, of your love for us, we you know our tendency to forget. You know how easy how easily we let slip the the truths that you teach us. All of us need to go back and remember what you've done and fix those events firmly in our mind and help us to remember on the on the basis of those memorials that whatever we have to face today, though we can't do it, you can and therefore we can. You're the great I am. The one who is everything we need. You've led us faithfully through life in the past and you're not going to abandon us now. So we want to follow you. We want to learn from you. We want to we ourselves want to become memorials of your, of your grace and your ability to change even the worst of us into glorious beings. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed. point of which is the next person you meet who has a need is your neighbor. So uh, Carolyn took that to heart. The next day, she was driving down Middlefield Road in Palo Alto, and it's one of those typically cold, uh, drizzled, uh, uh, damp uh, days in, in the San Francisco Peninsula. It was raining and wet, and uh, she saw a couple standing on the, on the curb, and they had a small baby with them, and so she picked them up. Began to chat with them, found out that the young woman's name was Diane, and she was Jewish. And she was from New York City. Had that very typical uh, sort of brittle way that uh, that uh, New Yorkers have. We have our own cultural sins, but uh, uh, you know what New Yorkers are like. Uh, and the young man she was with was a Puerto Rican, and the child was illegitimate, and they were traveling across across the country. And to make a long story short, Carolyn. Uh, broached the subject of uh, uh, spiritual things with them, began to chat with them about the gospel, found out that uh, at least Diane had an intense interest in spiritual things. Uh, I had a brand new New Testament that I had tossed up on the, uh, uh, up on the uh, what do you call that thing? Yeah, you know what I mean. It was sitting up there, brand new leather New Testament, which she gave to Diane and uh, it, with the promise that she would read it. And Diane took it home, began to read it. Carolyn was involved in her life over the next few months, helping her find an apartment, had her over at the house, eventually leading her to Christ. Uh, Junior couldn't handle that, and he left and went back to New York City. And uh, Diane stayed in the area for a while, uh, eventually marrying a young Jewish missionary with the American Board of Missions to the Jew, Mission to the Jews, and is now in New York City walking the streets sharing the gospel with her Jewish brothers and sisters. And I think uh, what, a, what a wonderful illustration of the, of the grace of God. Again, the most unlikely person in the world. A person who seems so hard and so cold and so indifferent, but yet who was so weary and so worn and so jaded by life and who inside was desperately looking for God. We picked up a track recently in which she described her experience. She didn't mention Carolyn's name, but she mentioned the woman who stopped in the rain and who gave her a ride and who led her to the Savior. That's what it means to be a messenger. Now I want you to understand, if you're a Rahab, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. I also want you to understand that there are Rahabs everywhere. 
We need to keep our eyes open. We need to be sensitive to the needs of people around us. The marvelous thing is that God has chosen to woo and to win his own creation and to use us in the process. Let's pray. I want to say again, if you are very sinful and you know it, that's a very good thing. Our Lord came to seek and to save the lost. And as the uh, hymn put it that we sang earlier, His grace is greater than our sin. No one is too far out or too far back or too far gone. If you want salvation, you can have it. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. It's there for the asking. As John puts it, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you ask him to do that for you? Will you acknowledge him as your Lord, as your Savior? Thank him for dying on the cross for you. Thank him that he has washed you whiter than snow. That he did not merely sweep your sins under the rug, but he took them away. There doesn't need to be any guilt or remorse or regret. You can begin to go on to live a new life, as Paul puts it. If any person, man or woman, is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Will you thank him for being your Savior? And then as a, as a body of, of Christians, let's uh, ask God to sensitize us and make us aware of the people around us that need to be touched with the gospel. Help us to see through the hardness to the heart. Lord, we thank you very much for this story, this reminder again of your grace and your goodness to us, that though you are indeed the judge, judgment is your strange work. It's not what you want. You came not to condemn the world, but to save it. We thank you for that great demonstration of your, of your heart and your intent to reach us and that you sent the Son, your only Son, to die for us to be the messenger to us of your love and your care for us. Thank you that you, that you sent him. Thank you that he himself, by his own choice, went to the cross to die for our sins. Thank you that we can, because of that death and his resurrection, enjoy an eternal salvation. And Lord, we would pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see the world as you see it, help us to develop a, an attitude of loving non-Christians and caring about them, and, and with great boldness, always with courtesy, but with great boldness and clarity, proclaiming the, the good news of salvation. Help us to be your messengers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.